accidentally drove past my favorite bakery and saw all those fresh pastries in the window just calling my name. I knew I had to pray for deliverance and strength. So I said, Lord, if you want me to have one of those pastries, those delicious pastries, you're going to have to give me a sign, a very special sign, a sign I can't mistake, a parking space right in front of the door. If this happens, Lord, I know it was a sign from you that I should have some of these pastries. Otherwise, I'll keep on going. And sure enough, there was a parking space right in front of the bakery. And it only took eight trips around the block for that to happen. It's an old story, although funny. It does point out the serious matter of not being serious about temptation. In our struggle against the rules of darkness, we often tend to fight with kids' gloves on. Our resolve to do right and to fight wrong often has the consistency of jello. Proverbs 6, 27 to 28 says this, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? I found this this poster on temptation. It's about Tinkerbell looking into a a bug zapper and says, oh, go ahead and touch it. Isn't it so pretty? Instead of taking cover, instead of finding God's way of escape, we put ourselves knowingly and wantingly in the line of fire. Like Samson who foolishly fell asleep in Delilah's lap, we often expose ourselves to unnecessary spiritual danger. We test God when we are not sincere in our attempts to obey his word. We test God when we knowingly put ourselves in harm's way and expect God to rescue us. Listen, we can, we can pray, we kind of pray to God for deliverance from evil while at the same time we are putting ourselves in temptation's way. We cannot be claiming the promises of God while acting in disobedience to them. Placing oneself in sin is a matter of tempting God and encouraging the enemy. Nowhere is this more prevalent than when it comes to our sexual desires. Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person's commit are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This morning, I want to focus our attention on temptation, temptation of the flesh. This is the temptation that Joseph, as a young man, both faced and defeated in Genesis 39. Our goal today is to learn how to avoid some of the tremendous consequences that others have had to experience. And please don't think it can't happen to you. It appears to have happened to the smartest man in all of Scripture, Solomon. It definitely happened to the strongest man in Scripture, Samson. It happened to one of the most spiritual men, a man after God's own heart, David in the Old Testament. And if you're not alert, it can happen to you. The Bible says, take heed lest you think uh, when you, uh, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Everyone in this room today needs to pay attention to this message, whether you're a teen, a young adult, a married person, anyone. Why? For one reason, we live in a sexually charged and saturated society. 
Sadly, sexual immorality is not just out there in the world. Sexual immorality has found a home in the church as well. About one-third of teens in church will have sexual intercourse by the time of 18. They're 18. Another third will take it right to the edge. And a survey in Christianity Today found that a quarter of all of its subscribers admitted to having extramarital affairs. That means one in four Christians commit adultery. Twelve percent of Protestant ministers admitted to having extramarital affairs. Let me ask, is this a big deal? Should we be concerned, or am I just making nothing about something that is just, well, you know, so natural? I guess it all depends on what God's view of sexual immorality is. A Pew Research study found the following percentage of Christians say sex in an unmarried, committed relationship is 33% okay, always okay. 24% sometimes okay. 10% Rarely okay, but he said he loved me. 32% never okay. Those are frightening statistics. In talking to Christians, God's word says this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, one of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which is out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, that's a much different and a much narrower definition than what you research found. There must not even be a hint. Listen, we need to understand that sexual sin is serious business to God, and it has been for thousands of years. In the Law of Moses, in the 18th chapter of Leviticus, God's view of how we should behave is laid out in black and white. This chapter is basically a long list of what God's people were not supposed to do. And those prohibitions are sandwiched between these two warnings. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons will be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord. God demands that his followers live lives that are pure regardless of their environment or their desires. And in this regard, no one serves as a better example than Joseph. Joseph's resistance to temptation is demonstrated for us in that it can be done. It can be overcome. Okay, so let's talk about Joseph. Now remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he became a slave in the household of Potiphar. And while working for Potiphar, Joseph did such a great job that he was promoted by Potiphar and put in charge of all of his household, second to no one other than Potiphar himself. And this is where trouble begins. Genesis 39, verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Now I can relate to was well-built and handsome. But in my case, the strong emphasis on, on was <laughs> long time ago. She was a little forward, don't you think? Now, I'm sure Joseph's heart must have leapt in his throat. He was no doubt shocked. Maybe he was flattered. I can imagine this had to be a difficult temptation for Joseph. Keep in mind that he's a young man. 
He's a bachelor. He has normal desires, not to mention that for the last 10 years, he's been saturated with Egyptian values. The old values that he learned from his parents must have seemed a little old and out of place in that social environment. Besides, no one would know. They were all alone. Those advances had to be a tremendous ego boost. Imagine being a, a hot, well-built young man or, or a gorgeous woman if we flipped the roles around. Would, would, uh, how would you feel being approached by a beautiful, powerful woman? But look at what is recorded for us. There's an incredible verse found in verse 8, an incredible line. And it simply says, but he refused. But he refused. He was the original Me Too movement, the original just say no. Joseph said no, and he gave Potiphar's wife two reasons. One is rational and the other is spiritual. He says, first, I can't do this because I respect my earthly master. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in his house. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Joseph was loyal to the man who had been so good to him. He thought about how this sin would affect others. And in like manner, when we're tempted to have an affair to do something immoral, it might be a good idea for us to, to step back and think about how our actions affect others, how they affect our spouses, our families, our parents, the other people. And how about thinking about the other person's future wife, future husband? Listen, you have no right to take something that belongs to them away, to steal it. Joseph didn't think about himself. He said, I can't do this because it would hurt Potiphar. And second, Joseph said, I can't do this thing because it would hurt God. How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? One way to overcome temptation is to never get past the shock of how horrible sin is, how it hurts God, how it grieves his spirit. Now, I understand this is not easy to do because Satan is the master at getting us to call sexual immorality and other sins anything but what it is, sin and death against our own bodies and souls. Now, Joseph could have reasoned that this was just a little fling, and besides, after all, he had been through in his life, well, he kind of deserved to have a little fun, but he said, I can't do this wicked thing and sin against God. Check out verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day after day after day, he refused to go to bed with her and even be with her. Miss Potiphar, now she was relentless. She was not going to give up without a fight. Now I can imagine that she modified her approach several times. Okay, she probably said, I understand your convictions. Let's just be friends. I need someone to talk to. Just what another man needs, right? We're not generally looking for people to talk to. Just what a man needs. But Joseph refused to even be with her. Verse 11 and 12 says, One day Joseph went in, uh, well, back up one, and said, look, this is, a, this is what I think Joseph kind of had in mind. If you're not intending on going in the house and doing things the right way, stay off the porch. And Joseph stayed off the porch. Verses 11 and 12. One day Joseph went into the house to attend his duties. He's doing his job. And none of the household servants were inside. And Miss Potiphar called him by the coat and said, come to bed with me. Now, this was completely unexpected. There was no time for Joseph to sit down and to reason with Miss Potiphar. Listen, sometimes there are times when you can sit down and reason with people. And sometimes you can't. 
It's too dangerous. And Joseph perceived that this was one of those times. So he ran from the house, leaving his coat in her hand. This is the second time that Joseph has lost a really good coat. But understand, it's better to lose a coat than to lose your purity. You know, I believe Joseph's response was predetermined. I think he had already thought this thing through. What am I going to do if I get caught alone with her in the house and she's naked or she starts to attack me? I can't just stand there and look. I might do something stupid. That can't happen. I know what I'll do. I'll run. Predetermining is not a bad idea. Joseph did the right thing, but refusal really ticked off Potiphar's wife. When she could not have him, when he turned her down, when he said that he did not want anything to do with her, her infatuation with Joseph turned to hatred, as it often does. She wanted to destroy him. Shakespeare said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I love this picture. That boy in the middle is absolutely clueless. And that girl on the right is about ready to pop him, and he's going to turn to her and the other girl. He's going to be popped by both of them by the time this is all done. And they'll be the best of friends, I'm sure. And so she retaliated by falsely accusing Joseph of assaulting her. Verse 16 says she kept his cloak beside her until her master came home. Can you just see her preparing herself for this act, saying, you know, this acting scene? She may have even you know, had an onion to help bring tears to her eyes. She grabbed the cloak and began to tremble. Tears started rolling. She's probably rubbing her eyes to make it look like she'd been crying all day. Then she told her story. She told her husband, she said, that, that Hebrew slave you brought here, he tried, he tried to attack me, but I screamed, and he ran away. He left his coat. When Potiphar heard the story, he burned with anger, and poor Joseph was tossed into prison. How do you think Joseph felt at this time? I mean, he had done the right thing, and the reward was being falsely accused and being thrown into prison. You need to understand that sometimes there is a heavy price to pay for purity. You may lose friends. You may lose relationships. You may lose co-workers. Someone may want to destroy you as well, falsely accusing you. So let's look at what we can learn, what we can take away from Joseph's life. There's a couple lessons I think we can learn here, lessons that will help us overcome temptation. Number one, God's standards are absolute. They don't change. It didn't matter that Joseph had been abused. It didn't matter that he was removed from his homeland. It didn't matter that the Egyptian culture was completely immoral. It didn't matter that Joseph's life had been taken from him and that he was forced to be a slave. God's word was not altered in his life. And there are today, even among Christians, those who would suggest that standards of morality fluctuate by what is deemed socially acceptable in the world around us. The writer to Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not let any kind of strange teaching lead you into the wrong way. Listen, God doesn't grade on a curve. You remember being in high school or college and you take an exam that was so ridiculously hard the high grade might have been a 40 or a 30. Everybody failed. And so the teacher would grade on a curve. All of a sudden, a, a 40 became a 100. To me, that always meant the guy didn't do a very good job of teaching. But this is grading on a curve. Well, Jesus, God doesn't grade on a curve. The exam requirements are straight, clear, and he doesn't grade on a curve. Fortunately, he is also a God of grace, 
of mercy, forgiveness, and of second chances. Matthew 24 says, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God's standards of morality do not change. Even though our culture is becoming increasingly moral, even though you may be single and very lonely, even though your marriage is not as fulfilling as you thought it would be, even though someone at work might find you irresistible, even though our society says, hey, a little porn on the net, a few dirty movies are okay, God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. The second reason we need to remember is that temptation is normal, even for the godly. Sometimes we falsely think, well, if we could just get spiritual enough we wouldn't have to deal with sexual temptation or any kind of temptation, really. But listen, being a Christian does not exempt us from those things. Remember, the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ was tempted in all points just the same as we are yet without sin. No matter how good we are, no matter how long we live, no matter how many Bible studies you attend, you still live in a fleshly body. And therefore, you may find temptation in this world appealing. An old priest was asked by a young man, Father, he said, when will I cease to be tempted by the sins of the flesh? And the old priest thought for a while, and he said, Son, I wouldn't trust myself until I had been dead at least three days in the ground. Remember, also, we've been given armor to defend ourselves. Paul says to the Ephesians, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which you, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you remember from our study series in the armor of God, that those verses talking about the Word of God there are referring to His spoken Word, when we actually speak the Word of God as a defense, just like Jesus did when He was tempted by Satan. But in order to do that, we have to hide God's Word in our heart. Because it's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes when we give in to temptation. The third reason is this, victory is possible if we run, if we run. Now, I'm not much of a runner, but this is the kind of case where you need to be a runner. When Joseph faced sexual temptation, what did he do? He ran. He ran as fast as he could in the, in the opposite direction. <clears throat> and that is what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says to flee from sexual immorality. With that in mind, I want to share an acrostic of the word run that will help you, will help us to remember how to be victorious over sexual temptation. R, remember your covenants. Remember your covenants with your spouse or your future spouse. Listen, you made a covenant that they, that your husband or wife, would be the only source of satisfaction on the face of the earth. Anytime you allow someone else or something else to get your motor running, you're breaking that covenant. You're breaking that covenant. And to those not yet married, one day you will make that same covenant. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait to do it right and to be pure. Second, remember the covenant that you made with God. When you became a Christian, when you came in faith, when the blood of Jesus washed you clean, you made a covenant 
with Almighty God, a covenant where you said, I will no longer live for myself. I will be different. I will be in this world, but not of it. A covenant where you said you would be like Jesus and live like he did. In 1 John, he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We need to run. You, we got to understand the consequences. Can a man scoop fire into his lap and not be burned? Can he work, walk on coals and, and not have his feet burn? Sexual immorality has consequences. For one thing, it hurts the people you love. If it's an affair, it hurts your spouse, it hurts your children, and it hurts the other person's family as well. And of course, there are the obvious consequences of those activities, unwanted pregnancies, STDs, broken homes, and of course, one more consequence. Sexual immorality hurts your relationship with God. It is your evil that separate you from God. Your sins cause him to turn away from you, so he does not hear. Isaiah 59, 2. A man in the Old Testament who did not run when sexual immorality came knocking, King David, wrote these words about his sin with Bathsheba from Psalm 32 and 51. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Oh, give me back joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the state of my guilt. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your spirit from me. I wonder if David... For David, if that sin was worth the consequences, I don't think they were. Victory is possible if we run. Remember your covenants. Understand the consequences. And, and never play around with fire. The enemy is subtle and very good at tripping us up, ever so slowly luring us in until we are trapped in sin. According to tradition, this is how an Eskimo hunter kills a wolf. It's a bit gruesome of a story, but so is sin. First, the Eskimo will coat a knife blade in animal blood and let it freeze. And he will continue to build that up layer by layer until the blood fully coats that knife. He will then plant that knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf smells the scent of blood and that bait, he comes and he begins to lick it. And he tastes that fresh frozen blood, and he begins to lick faster and faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until its bare edge is exposed. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the cold Arctic night. His craving for blood becomes so great that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue. Nor does he recognize the instance when his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His, his uh, carnivorous appetite continues to crave until in the morning light, the wolf is found dead on the snow. Gruesome, but so is sin. Many begin using drugs, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, engaging in immoral behavior for the same reasons that the wolf began licking that blade. It seems safe and delicious at first, but it doesn't satisfy more and more is desired, leading to a crisis of death. Paul said these words in Romans. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? 
Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. If you are weakened by relationships with certain people, you may need to avoid them. Because if you place yourself in a vulnerable situation with someone, and you think it's okay, no big deal, you're playing around with fire, chances are you're going to get burned. Joseph did not play with fire. He didn't linger around those things that would have or could have tempted him. Genesis 39.10 says, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Joseph wasn't taking any chances. Let me leave you with four quick Quick things that will help keep you out of fire. Number one, make a covenant with your eyes. Job said these words, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a young woman. And it applies the other direction as well. Are you willing to do that? To make a covenant with your eyes not to look at someone with lust. Someone or person or, or picture, no matter where that might be. Turn your eyes and look away. Train your eyes to look away. Number two, give your body to God. Paul says in Romans, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have a new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Number three, control your thoughts. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And number four, claim the promises. 1 Corinthians 10 says, But remember this, the wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you and no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and will do what he says. He will show you how to escape temptation's power so that you can bear up patiently against it. Peter says his divine power gives us everything we need for living godly lives. Listen, victory is possible if we run. As I prepared this week, I became more and more convinced that this is a sin that must be defeated in our lives. When a quarter of all believers are having affairs, when a third of teenagers are experimenting, when pornography runs rampant, there is no way that this isn't hurting the church's effectiveness for Christ. And when that church's effectiveness is hurt, we become sidelined and we're ineffective at winning people to Jesus. Sure, the world may say that none of this is really a big deal, but God says among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. God's standard has not changed. Our world will continue to tempt us more and more, but victory is possible. The story doesn't end here for Joseph. The Scriptures record that when Joseph was in prison, God was with him, and he lifted him up yet again to even higher places, to where he became second to only Pharaoh, in all of Egypt. Let me close with these two illustrations. Worship team, you can make your way back up. Rinald III was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. 
grossly overweight. He was called Crassus, which is a Latin word meaning fat. He was known as Renald the Fat. Now, Reynald's younger brother Edward had a revolt against him and captured him. But instead of killing him, he built a room around Renald in the castle. He promised him he could regain his title and property whenever he left the room. Now, that wouldn't be so hard for most people because there were doors and windows of normal size, none of which were barred or locked. But Renald was so fat that he was trapped. He needed to lose weight to get out. But Edward knew his older brother and each day sent from the royal kitchen a battery of pastries and goodies to keep him well fed. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, he got even fatter. When Edward was accused of being so cruel to him, he said, my brother is not in prison. He may leave whenever he wants to. But Ronald was a prisoner of his own appetites. Are you? Are you a prisoner of your own appetites? There's victory over those things. One final illustration has to do with catching monkeys. Do you know how they catch monkeys in certain parts of the world? I'm sure you've heard this before. It's not new. They'll tie a coconut and they'll stick it to the ground. And then they'll drill a hole in the coconut and they'll put a piece of food in it, just big enough for a monkey to get his hand into, but not big enough that he can pull his hand out while holding on to the food. But the monkey will refuse to let go, even when danger approaches, and would rather be caught than let go of that food. It turns out that we are no different sometimes than the monkeys. <laughs> we are possessed by our own appetites and desires. Look, there is freedom in Jesus from all of these things. It doesn't mean it's cheap and easy. It wasn't. It cost him his life for him shedding his blood. And it will mean work for you. But coming to Jesus, having a relationship with him, will empower you to do things beyond what you can imagine or think. And it's as simple as saying, Lord, I know I'm trapped by my own appetites and desires. I want to be free from sin. Come into my life. I'll make you Lord of my life. Give me the strength to live for you each day. And he will. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to close with a song.